0: Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Early voting is now underway for the November general elections here in Minnesota. We were there on Friday as the city of Minneapolis opened its early vote center. It will be open weekdays from 8 to 4 30 with weekend hours the last two weekends before the election. Minnesotans have 46 days to take advantage of early voting. That is the longest early voting period of any state in the U.S. Our state posted a nearly 70 voter turnout rate during the 2016 general election. Political campaign money continues to flood into Minnesota for the 2018 midterm elections. We're likely to break fundraising records set just two years ago. And there's growing evidence that spending the most money isn't necessarily why a candidate wins. DEAN PHILLIPS, THE WORST KIND OF HYPOCRISY. JEFF JOHNSON WOULD PUSH US TO THE BRINK FINANCIALLY. You're watching this on TV right now. That means you've likely seen the barrage of political ads that seem to start earlier than ever in Minnesota. However... The
1: short-term impacts don't actually equal long-term vote changes.
0: Maggie Kurth-Baker is a science writer for the website 538, who recently turned her attention to political science. She studied how money affects elections by reviewing new campaign finance research and interviewing political scientists around the country. What she found might stun the people paying big money to crank out all these ads. The ads themselves
1: don't have a big impact necessarily, and it's hard to find, or at least it's hard to find evidence of them having a big impact.
0: Which might stun you when you look at all the money being spent. Candidates in Minnesota's eight congressional races have raised $17.7 million so far. And outside spending in just the four most closely contested races totals 5.9 million. With tens of millions more expected for TV ads. There are definitely cases
1: where spending can matter. It matters a lot in cases where you don't have an incumbent. It matters where the people running aren't particularly well-known.
0: So that means spending might have an impact on the governor's race. We do find that
1: there is a correlation between having the most and winning.
0: However, Kurth Baker says her research shows in most cases, DONORS PUT THEIR MONEY ON WHO THEY THINK WILL WIN SO THEY CAN GAIN INFLUENCE AFTER AN ELECTION. THE MONEY
1: DOESN'T CAUSE WINNING. WINNING CAUSES MONEY.
0: IF YOU WANT TO HAVE THE MOST INFLUENCE WITH YOUR CAMPAIGN DONATIONS, IT APPEARS THE BEST WAY IS TO DONATE TO SMALL RACES THAT GET THE LEAST ATTENTION. YOU ALSO HAVE THE BEST CHANCE OF HAVING INFLUENCE IN PRIMARY ELECTION RACES WHERE THERE IS LESS OVERALL SPENDING. Well, from now through Election Day, we're going to keep you updated on the amount of outside spending flooding Minnesota, especially in congressional races. So far, these are the updated totals. The third district race is attracting the most at $3.4 million. The first district totals $1.4 million. The eighth district stands at $820,000. And the second district checks in at $458,000. The total for those four hotly contested congressional races is $6.1 million. That will grow a lot. The candidates for Minnesota governor laid out different visions this week for how to deal with a statewide worker shortage. The Twin West Chamber of Commerce hosted Wednesday's debate between DFL or Tim Wolves and Republican Jeff Johnson. Both agree that issues surrounding education, workforce training and economic opportunity are some of the biggest that they encounter on the campaign trail.
2: We have to start looking at the fact that there are going to be more and more non-traditional students going to college and going to tech school. And we have to make sure our schools are catering to them. We cannot let a single child fall through the cracks here, both morally or economically. We must make sure that workforce is totally trained. 70% of the workforce in the next 25 years is going to come from communities of color. That achievement gap matters. And we have to continue to make Minnesota a welcoming state.
0: The two candidates have several more debates coming up before Election Day, including a televised debate here on 5 Eyewitness News next month. We'll have more details on that coming up soon. Another issue the candidates for governor have different stances on is recreational marijuana. Our exclusive KSTP Survey USA poll found that 56% of likely voters said they support making it legal in Minnesota, while 35% said no. Eric Chalou goes beyond the numbers to explain why races down the ballot could actually have the greatest impact on this issue.
3: Recreational marijuana is a talker on the campaign trail. I trust adults to make their own decisions. DFL candidate for governor Tim Walls once called it pot for potholes. Legalization
2: taxed by the state. Let's make sure that it's regulated. Let's make sure that people who want to use it can use it in a responsible manner and that the state benefits. I don't support legalization of recreational marijuana even though I've got a, a pretty strong liberty bent to me. Republican Jeff Johnson says he would like to examine how it's punished. I also don't believe however that people should be using up jail space because they decided to smoke pot on their own without hurting anyone else. So I guess that is maybe a move towards decriminalization.
4: The Minnesota State Senate of course is not up for re-election so we know that we'll have a Republican controlled Senate. The House is is quite competitive.
3: That's where political scientist Catherine Pearson says the future of pot could be determined because party makeup of that chamber leaning one way or the other could be key since any governor would need their approval.
4: I think it really depends on what happens with the elections this fall. It surprises me that so many incumbents that are in safe districts are still afraid to like State their, their position on this publicly.
3: Marcus Harki runs a campaign for full legalization. The group recently polled House candidates to create a VOTERS guide scoring candidates based on their pot positions. Well a
4: lot of people assume that all of the Republicans are against it, but they aren't. there are some who who get it who support it
0: Now Harkas says his group saw four marijuana bills introduced at the Minnesota legislature last year that did not advance. Republican Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka told Eric Chaloux that while he's for medical marijuana, which is already legal in Minnesota, he does not support the legalization of recreational pot. Jacob Wetterling is a name and face Minnesotans will never forget. And we now have a better idea of why it took so long to solve the case that Minnesotans watched for nearly three decades. Danny Heinrich, a man first looked at when Jacob disappeared in 1989, eventually, in 2016, confessed to kidnapping, assaulting, and killing him. Now, two years later, 41,000 pages from that investigation have been released by the Stearns County Sheriff. That does not include the 12,000 pages the sheriff is calling on the FBI to release. The current sheriff says the documents he released show the case was mishandled by the FBI and other law enforcement. Even though current Stearns County Sheriff Don Goodmanson was never part of the Jacob Wetterling case, he says law enforcement at several levels bungled the investigation. But he put special emphasis on the FBI, which took over the case early on. There are huge wastes of time and manpower, particularly in the beginning. Essentially, there was a lot of manpower. Most of it was squandered. With Jacob's dad, Jerry, looking on, Goodmanson also points to a colossal failure early on to definitively connect the October 22nd, 1989, Wetterling abduction to Danny Heinrich after he was a suspect in the earlier abduction of a boy in Cold Spring and a series of molestations of several boys in Painesville. The first mention of the Cold Spring abduction and assault is in November 30th, 1989, in an interview of a Cold Spring victim and his parents, essentially. The task force has been spinning its wheels since October 22nd. Sheriff, do you mind? Can I use that podium? In an extraordinary move, the former FBI agent in charge of the Wetterling case stood up at the end of the news conference to defend the FBI. The sheriff gave him a minute or two to speak. You know what, Al? Why don't you take it outside?
4: Is it because you you don't want to hear this? No, no. uh,
0: Take it outside. I don't think you want to hear this. And that's unfortunate for everyone. And outside the news conference, those FBI agents, Al Garber, who you saw there, and Steve Gelkerson vehemently defended their work on the investigation. I want the picture to be clear. We're not dopes. We're not stupid. We don't miss big things. We didn't do everything right, but we certainly didn't do this. Garber also responded to claims the FBI kept other agencies, like the BCA and Sturds County Sheriff's Office, at bay when it came to investigating the case. He denied that's what happened, adding that trying to pit agencies against each other just damages cooperative efforts. You can go to KSTP.com for full coverage of the release of the files related to the Jacob Wetterling case. Up next, Ember got young and Andy Brem will be here for political analysis. We'll have our exclusive new poll numbers in the race for Minnesota Attorney General, how allegations of domestic abuse are impacting the contest between Keith Ellison and Doug Wardlow. It's been one month since Minnesota's DFL party chairman announced an internal investigation into the nominee for state attorney general. But when it comes to specifics about that investigation, party officials are still keeping quiet. Karen Monahan, a former girlfriend of Keith Ellison, raised allegations of domestic abuse days before the August primary. Not long after, DFL chairman Ken Martin announced their lawyers were investigating Ellison and those allegations. Just this week, Monahan posted on Twitter notes she says are from a doctor's visit where she told a medical professional she had been abused. Ellison continues to deny those allegations. Those allegations of domestic abuse are playing a role in Minnesota's race for Attorney General. Here are numbers from our exclusive KSTP Survey USA poll showing a tight contest amid those allegations.
3: You guys are the best.
0: Democrat Keith Ellison celebrated a hard fought primary victory last month over several opponents. But now he's in a tight race to hold on to an office Democrats have held
3: for 47 years. This is anybody's race. Uh, Ellison is vulnerable in the way other Democrats are not.
0: According to our KSTP Survey USA poll, Ellison and Republican Doug Wardlow are in a dead heat, each at 41 percent, with 14 percent undecided.
3: Keith Ellison is running behind other statewide Democratic candidates because of the allegations of domestic abuse against him and perhaps also because of some of his controversial policy positions.
0: That's that the I assessment of political scientist Stephen no, I mean, Shear referring to allegations of domestic abuse against Ellison made by a former girlfriend. When asked if the domestic abuse allegations are a factor in the race, 40 percent said they are a factor. said they're not, while
3: 21% say they're not sure. That 40% is a serious problem. It's probably not going to go away between now and Election Day. Well, I think it is a factor. Certainly people across Minnesota are concerned about these serious and troubling allegations of domestic abuse.
0: Republican Doug Wardlow acknowledges he might be benefiting from Ellison's personal issues. But he says there are also major differences in how they would run the office of attorney general.
3: Keith Ellison has basically pledged to use the office to wage war against President Trump. And regardless of what anyone thinks about President Trump, it's not appropriate to use the office of attorney general to wage a political war, to push a political agenda. Thanks
0: a lot. Despite the domestic abuse allegations against Ellison, our survey shows he still leads among women 49% to 31%. Wardlow leads among men 51% to 34%. There's also a big geographical divide. Ellison leads big in urban areas 64% to 19%. But Wardlow leads in rural areas 50% to 29%. And among suburban voters, 48% to 35%. Congressman Ellison declined multiple interview requests about our poll results. His campaign spokesman only sent us an email saying they believe grassroots support for Ellison will grow between now and Election Day, but he did not address any of the specific findings in our poll. Now, here is a look at our poll numbers compared to one out this week by the Star Tribune and Minnesota Public Radio. In that Star Tribune NPR poll, 41% of voters supported Ellison, the same as the Survey USA KSTP poll, and 36% support Wardlow. The Star Tribune NPR poll has a much larger number of undecided at 18%. And joining me now for political analysis, former State Senator Ember Reichgott-Young and Andy Brim, almost called her Andy. Uh, (laughs) uh, Andy and Ember, thank you both for being here. That is interesting when you look at how high the undecideds are. Uh, Obviously very high in the Attorney General's race, but we've seen that in U.S. Senate races and the Governor's race. But sticking to the AG's race for now, clearly that is a problem for Keith Ellison. He's the one with all the name recognition, and there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines right now waiting to see how these allegations play out.
3: Well, I think there's a good portion of the electorate that's waiting to make a decision. Politics isn't the most fun to pay attention to right now. So... I understand that, but at the end of the day, Keith Ellison's in huge trouble. I mean, again, I'm scratching my head. I can't understand why he wouldn't comment and respond to these disastrous poll numbers for him. These personal allegations are deeply troubling, but on top of that, he's a bad fit for the office. Keith Ellison is a a policy guy. He's an activist he's not a law enforcer. People want an attorney general that's going to enforce the laws and keep the policy at the state legislature, and that's what Doug Wardlow wants to do. So I think at the end of the day, people want a good law enforcement officer, and that's not Keith Ellison.
0: Ember, a Republican has not been elected uh, attorney general since 1966. Uh, this race, these races are usually not even close. What do you make of these numbers?
5: Well, even Steve Bannon said... That the Me Too movement in this country is one of the most powerful that we've ever seen in our time. That's affecting both Judge Kavanaugh and I think it's also affecting Keith Ellison. And the problem here um, is, I think, how he's responded to that. And I think if he could ask for an ethics investigation, similar to how Al Franken did, that would help. The other thing I think would help for Keith Ellison, and I agree with you, is that he needs to let Minnesotans know that he has their back, that he's going to protect them and not just be uh, someone who's advocating against President Trump.
0: But Al Franken, of course, still ended up resigning. And now you've got the Kavanaugh situation, uh, the Supreme Court nomination, that is just bringing all of these issues back up. That is not good news for Keith Ellison.
3: No, particularly the comparison isn't very helpful to him at all. I mean, these are very recent allegations as it relates to Keith Ellison, and there's evidence that there was wrongdoing going on, unlike the Kavanaugh situation where it's recollections of over 30 years ago. So we need an explanation as to what happened. and and what's going on. But again, I don't think that's it. I mean, Keith Ellison's a terrible candidate for attorney general for a whole host of other reasons.
5: Is the Kavanaugh controversy not helping Keith Ellison at all? No, it is not helping him. But what is going to help Keith Ellison is that he is known for his get out the vote effort. He has a long time to do that during early voting. And if he does pull this out, it will be because of that uh, ability to bring people to the polls. And
0: as our poll showed, he still has a huge lead among women and there's going to be a lot of female voters out there. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays. Plays out. Now, as far as the rest of the races go, uh, you saw in the Tina Smith Karen Housley race, single digit lead for uh, Tina Smith, seven to nine points, depending upon whether it's our poll or the Star Tribune NPR poll, and single digit lead for Tim Walls over Jeff Johnson. What do the Republicans have to do, Andy, to close those gaps?
3: Well, I think Karen Housley is running at. Heck of a good campaign. I mean, she's a great candidate. She's smart. She's out there, so she's a great face for the party. And I think Jeff needs to talk about how he's going to make government work again. I mean, we hear a lot of this language about change, and that's great. Jeff wants to bring change, but what we want is competency. Jeff's good at that, so I think we need to get away from kind of the Trump-type messaging on the on the Republican side and talk about how we're going to govern because things are going to need to be a lot better. You look at traffic. You look at the DMV. There's tons of room for improvement. I think Jeff can bring that, but he needs to talk more about it.
5: You get the final word. This is a national election. The reason the top three Democrats are doing better than the Republicans is because we have President Trump in the White House, and the Republicans in the Congress are not holding him accountable. That's really what's going on there. Uh, they're maybe not talking about it, but that's what voters are feeling.
0: Yeah, we'll find out whether these midterms are a referendum on the president, which they often are, even when it's not a President Trump. So we'll see what happens. Ember and Andy, thank you both for being here. Up next, Brian McClung and Catherine Tanucci will be here for Face Off. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back. Time now for Face Off. Joining me today, Catherine Tanucci and Brian McClung. Thank you both for being here. Uh, fascinating days in Washington, D.C., and, of course, it's spilling over into elections here in Minnesota and across the country. What to do about the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, who is now under a, a cloud of suspicion about whether or not uh, he attempted to to grope or sexually assault a fellow high school student Uh, what is it, 36 years ago. Uh, Catherine, let me start with you. As this continues to play out, and we we don't know even this weekend exactly what's going to happen next week, there is a lot at stake, not just in that nomination, but how... It is perceived to be handled in terms of the midterm elections
4: right, I mean, first and foremost, the future of the Supreme Court of the United States is at stake, and that 's critically important, but as you note, there are real political implications, and in many ways, I think Democrats have already won the political fight on this one. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh is the first Supreme Court nominee to be underwater, meaning that more Americans disapprove of his um, appointment than than approve and so Democrats have won a, a, the the narrative on on opposing his appointment and confirmation. And Republicans are in a tough spot now on how they handle this because even if they, um, depending on what they do this week, if they approve his appointment to the Supreme Court, Democrats have a real strong case to make to voters to turn out and vote for Democrats in the midterm elections.
0: But, of course, Republicans would at least have the victory of Getting him approved for the Supreme Court, which is their long term goal
2: well, and also let 's look at how Senator Diane Feinstein handled this. She had the letter for seven weeks didn 't do anything with it she 's been criticized from both the left and the right for not doing anything. there still isn 't an unredacted version of that letter that Senators have had the opportunity to review so this is you know a situation that could have been dealt with sooner, could have been dealt with earlier and better. I mean a sexual assault uh, allegation is serious and it, it requires. Serious investigation, and Republicans are making sure that Dr. Ford has an opportunity to speak out and talk about this. So I think that's important. But Senator Feinstein really did a terrible job and a disservice to the whole process by holding on to that letter for seven weeks. She had it back in July, and there would have been a better opportunity to have this conversation rather than at at kind of in the waning days.
0: Well, and there is suspicion, there's always a a A THEORY THAT THEY DID THIS ON PURPOSE, TO BRING IT OUT VERY LATE IN THE PROCESS SO THERE'S NOT ENOUGH TIME FOR PRESIDENT TRUMP TO NOMINATE SOMEONE ELSE, AND THEN GET THAT PERSON THROUGH BEFORE REPUBLICANS LOSE CONTROL, IF THEY LOSE CONTROL OF THE SENATE.
4: NOW, ONE OF MY RULES, MY NUMBER ONE RULE IN POLITICS, IS IF YOU'RE ARGUING PROCESS, YOU'RE LOSING. I DON'T THINK um, AMERICANS ARE GOING TO CARE QUITE SO MUCH ON PROCESS um, WHEN WE'RE TALKING ABOUT WHAT STANDARDS WE HOLD FOR APPOINTMENTS TO THE HIGHEST COURT IN THE LAND, AND MORE PEOPLE CARE ABOUT THE SERIOUS NATURE OF THESE ALLEGATIONS, WHICH HAVE NEVER MATTERED MORE THAN RIGHT NOW DURING HIS CONFIRMATION HEARINGS WHEN WE'RE HAVING the CONVERSATION ABOUT WHO SHOULD BE APPOINTED AND CONFIRMED.
0: DOES IT MATTER THAT THEY WERE 36 YEARS AGO WHEN THEY WERE HIGH SCHOOL TEENAGERS?
2: Well, I think it does matter to some people, but that's what the Senate is there for. That's what these hearings are there for. That's why you need to have people come forward and have these conversations. So that's, that's the role of the Senate is to go through that, have that conversation, and make sure that Dr. Ford has her opportunity to share that information with the committee members.
0: Well, there's no question. This will be the biggest story of the week and perhaps of the campaign uh, moving forward. So we'll see what happens, Brian and Catherine. Thanks for being here. Up next, meet a father-daughter triathlon duo from the Southwest Metro representing their country. This Minnesota father and daughter share a unique bond as triathletes. Mike and Bella Bunting of Chanhassen just finished competing for Team USA at the World Triathlon Grand Final in Australia. They both qualified in their respective age groups and Mike tells us Bella was the second youngest athlete to compete at 16 years of age.
1: I've been doing it for a long time. Bella started racing triathlon probably seven years old. They started making these little iron kid races so I would travel to Colorado to do a half Ironman race and we'd take her bike along and she'd do this little iron kid race the day before and then it just kept progressing from there.
3: Colleges some of them now have varsity triathlon for women and I'd love to compete in um, college and hopefully move on like Olympic pro level.
0: Bella, the iron kid, tells us she's also hoping to earn a college scholarship for triathlon competition. That's all the time we have. See you next week.